Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And we are here today talking about managing multiple product teams. And this is something that a lot of product managers aspire to. And uh, sometimes it might be, be careful what you wish for. But we're going to talk about this conversation is going to be for multiple different people. It's going to be for people who are currently managing multiple product teams and want to know from two product executives, you know, what are some of the challenges and how do you overcome those challenges? But this conversation is also for those of you who want to eventually become somebody who gets to manage multiple product teams and thinking through what can you show earlier in your career that will give leadership the confidence to give you an opportunity to manage multiple product teams. And we have two product executives. I'm going to start with Leslie. Please tell us just a little bit about your experience as a product executive and a little bit about yourself before we then hear from John and then dive into the conversation. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. I think this topic is not talked about enough, so I'm really glad that we brought it to the forefront. And my experience in managing multiple product teams has started a while back when I was at Real Networks in the early 2000s, and I had Real Player, Real Jukebox, Real Download products that were separate applications. But then through the years, I worked at Apple and at T-Mobile, and my portfolio at T-Mobile was all smartphones. So that was a BlackBerry and a Sidekick products that were the same, only different. And then as I moved on from T-Mobile, I ran a consulting business for a number of years, but then uh, took a job working at eventually at Best Buy, where I was responsible for the mobile applications, which were for Geek Squad and for Best Buy. So two different, one was for sales and one was for service. And then lastly, I I, uh, retired recently from Amazon, where I managed multiple ad-related product teams that themselves were not all related. And it was probably the most unusual version of managing multiple product teams that I've had in my career is the most recent one. And so it was a learning process for me as well. But today, I am uh, not only a, a retiree, I am also an executive in residence at the University of Washington Product Management Center for their Elevate program, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. All right, Leslie, it's a joy to have you here, and it's a joy, just a a preview. You're going to hopefully talk a little bit about the Elevate program, which you helped the University of Washington Foster School of Business launch for product managers who want to advance in their career. It's an exclusive program to be surrounded by brilliant product managers, and you helped us build it, and you're leading the first extended workshop, which is exclusively for people in the Elevate program. So we're going to talk about that uh, later on. But first, got to dive into giving value about managing multiple product teams. And we have John Yerkeson here who has done that as well. So John, tell us a little bit about your experience, where you've managed multiple product teams before we then start this conversation. Sure. Thank you for having me, Jeff and Leslie. It's great to be here. It's an exciting topic. My career started as a marketing exec and climbed the ranks and eventually moved over to product management. And I've spent over 10 years managing many product teams at Amazon in the marketplace, two different roles in search science as well as in traffic organizing. And I also was the former, I'm the former chief product officer at change.org. So I've been running product teams for over 15 years and uh, super excited to be here and have this discussion. All right, thank you for being here. And so Leslie, I'm gonna start with you. If I could get you to just share, if you could dig back to your time at Real Networks and you first started managing multiple product teams, what kind of blew you away as being very different from either managing a single product team or just being an IC, individual contributor? That's a great starting question because I think the very first thing you recognize is not all of your products are in the same state of development or in the same state of customer growth. And so trying to understand how one group might be struggling in one area, but the other two groups don't need it. And how do you divide your time so that it's not always just going to the squeaky wheel, that you're actually moving all the businesses forward, no matter where they are, with an accelerated view towards the outcomes you want them to get, as opposed to, well, this is where I have to spend my time because this group is the neediest. I think that was the part for me that was the biggest learning experience, which is not how not to be crisis-driven in my attention. 
and how to be uh, valuable at all stages for each of the teams that needed that type of support for that moment in time. I think that's the real learning part. You kind of have to get confidence that you know how to do because otherwise you're just literally going to always be trying to plug the leak or stop the, you know, the burn and then never get the team into sort of that positive forward looking state. What about for you, John? What was the biggest shock when you first started managing multiple product teams? What was the biggest surprise or challenge that you faced? I didn't realize how hard it would be. And it just took a little while to get into a groove to understand the different products, understand the teams, how they could work together. And a little bit building on what Leslie said about the squeaky. It's easy to go do that and you lose sight of your aligned goals or OKRs or whatever it may be. So you have to kind of keep that in check. And moving to leading product managers, it's a very different role. But uh, once you kind of get some basic things in there, it's possible to do. And those basic things would be like how to increase customer obsession across these teams, but also importantly, how to get the teams to linked. I have found some success early in my career by having product team A and product team B sharing best practices or sharing dependencies to understand how their roles could overlap. Okay, so I would just want to hear, uh, we'll go back and forth. Leslie, what did you find to be the resources or kind of the frameworks that really helped you kind of tackle some of these challenges? What was most helpful as you uh, started to figure things out, so to speak? I think the thing that became rapidly important for me was to make sure that each group hung off a, a shared strategy, even if that strategy was at the 20,000 foot level and the lines diverged as you got into the tactics. You wanted to make sure that people all understood they were going towards the same strategy or they were contributing even in their own way to an outcome that would advance the strategy. And I think that's the place where it, it became really imperative to carve out time to be able to have those conversations so that you would have a town hall or you might have a business review and people wouldn't be bored when the other team spoke because they wouldn't necessarily just think it's something else in another silo. They'd actually see the genetic connection to the strategy, right? And so really making sure that I was always sort of knitting things together at the right altitude to keep people motivated to help each other and to be even leading someone through a process they'd been through before and wanting to help them because it helps the overarching strategy to be that type of colleague, right? Not to just be focused on your own OKRs, but that everything rolled up to something that was a larger agenda. Then it made it easier for people to share best practices or to understand hey, if I need to borrow resources from team B to help team A meet a goal, they'll understand why that's important to do. And so I think that became the next sort of tier of learning for me was how do I continue to set a strategy that ties the pieces together, invests people in the bigger idea, and gives everybody a reason to care about everyone else on the larger team that reported to me. I think those were the mechanisms I had to create to enable the tactical stuff to not just be ready, fire, aim. And then, so John, you had experience as an executive before, like outside of just leading product teams is my understanding. So what is unique about managing and leading product teams versus just leading teams in general, whether it's marketing strategy or, so what are the big differences there? I think that's a really good question. And for me, within the Amazon world where this happened, I how to learn and experience how to talk a shared language and a shared vocabulary, which is very different than other parts of roles that I had previously. And getting product teams, including engineering teams, and both managing up and managing up to think about the same process, the same vocabulary, so that we could go innovate. Leslie mentioned about aligned goals and OKRs. That's part of it. But like the tactic or a tool that we used was the PRFAQ process for, at Amazon, they write a press release before we launch a product. And that's a great shared way to get common language and to get people on the same page. And I felt like that's a new process that it didn't exist in my previous chapters of my career. So I found that to be very helpful. 
Thank you. And then I'd love to dive into stories, if we could, because I know we, a lot of people have read about OKRs, they've read about uh, some frameworks and everything, but I'd love to just boots on the ground, What any sort of challenges that you've particularly faced and how you, in that instance, overcame them. And I'll start with you, Leslie, if you don't mind being put on the spot, but can you think of any sort of specific challenge without I don't know, without naming names, maybe not even name companies, but just try to help us see on the day-to-day of managing multiple product teams, something that happened to you and what you learned from either the failure or what you learned from the success that you did. Yeah, sure. I actually don't mind discussing that it was specifically at Best Buy. One of the challenges that we had was whether or not the mobile app should more mirror what the web experience was or whether the mobile app should diverge and become something that was a useful tool for even in-store shopping. Well, but once you get into in-store shopping, now you're also potentially talking about someone who's coming into a store to see a Geek Squad agent. And so a lot of times you want to sort of share the problem and get the greatest good out of a solution that's the simplest for the most value. But in the organization that Best Buy was, it was difficult to get leverage out of what was happening on the Geek Squad side because their systems and the way they ran the customer interactions there was totally different. So while I owned both apps, I had a hard time strategically pulling them towards the center to solve problems when people want to come into a store for an appointment, whether it's for a service appointment or a sales appointment, it should be the same user experience. But unifying the user experience would have meant unifying in-store systems that were completely separated that I didn't control. And so the challenge, I think, as a leader there is you can sometimes see the simpler solution, but you don't own all the moving parts to it. And that simpler solution might be simple for your product customer interaction mold, but it actually creates other downstream or upstream challenges that other groups then have to buy into in order to accept what just might be simple at that moment in time for the job to be done, which is I want to make an appointment and come and check in for my appointment, whether it's sales or support. And that seems like an oversimplified thing to be able to do it once in one app, but you had to do it two different ways in two different apps because there were two different systems. And so even though we had the strategy that that should be a good and seamless customer experience, bringing the entire enterprise together on that as an OKR that everyone would support and all the other systems that would have to unify for that to appear as a unified experience to the customer was just a sort of a bridge too far for what would have been a good idea if I had just looked at my products in a vacuum. I hope that kind of gets at the question or the point you were trying to aim for. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And now, John, same question to you. Any stories of, sorry, we haven't, so if you can, for those of you who are here, you're seeing that John sounds or looks a lot like me. We're sharing a microphone. We're in the same room and he's listening through his picture there. So I apologize if you can't tell who's John and who's me, but we're both, it looks like me for all of you listening. But anyway, John, same question to you. Any stories of managing multiple product teams that you could share what happened and then what you learned from it, either because you did the right thing or because things went sideways? Sure. A specific example that comes to mind was when we were building the recommendation system to help sellers and brands light up Prime Day, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and things like that. So they had all these great goods and great items. They didn't know what to put on sale, at what price and what rate, how many, things like that. So we developed a product that would make it really easy for them with three clicks to help create a much greater customer experience. But what I found not uncommon when managing multiple product teams is resources become a challenge. And so we started to prove, and we were down the path with great results, but we didn't have enough ML resources, machine learning resources. So we had to go to other teams and work with them around shared goals so that we could get them aligned to what we were going to deliver. And that took some time. But once we got aligned and we could leverage their skill sets as well as the product team skill sets, it really got into gear. And we were able to take this product to the next level. And we were eventually launching rocket ships that have still helped Amazon and all their sellers find the right items to provide customers on these hyper sales deals. Thank you. These stories are great. I just love hearing kind of what's actually happening. And so, John, what did you learn from that experience? Is there any bite-sized takeaway that somebody could uh, apply in their different contexts? Yeah. We always think when managing multiple product teams, I think 
stubborn on the vision and flexible on the details. And our vision was good, but we hadn't thought through enough the details, how we needed resources from another team. So we fell short on that. And if we could go back, I would have challenged the team up front to think more deeply about that. What other dependencies could be down the road? What other resources would be required? And so that we could have run faster from the beginning. And Leslie, do you have any similar experiences where that same takeaway would have helped you in what you were doing? Yeah, you know, I was just I was just thinking as he as John was saying that in my view, the execution of the result versus the choice of execution. In other words, are you moving towards the result and does the stakeholder group change if you choose different executions? And sometimes when you have multiple product teams, you try to reduce the number of stakeholders and you try to pick the path with the least number of people to have to get buy-in from or to have to share if more than one product team is going to be touching something. One of the things that really you struggle with is multiple product teams could mean just an exponentially large stakeholder group. So getting all of those things down to the most basic underpinnings that people can understand to give yourself the latitude to make different choices around execution would be ideal, but it's super hard to do. You find that your stakeholders change as soon as you change your execution choice. And so then you have to kind of go back two steps to run forward a couple of steps. So you have these two problems. One is that your stakeholder group goes across all your product groups and you have to manage them all effectively. But then if something changes or someone wants to change how they execute because the details don't work out the way you thought in your initial MVP, you might all of a sudden now change your entire stakeholder group and and in fact, go through that problem as if you started over. And so stakeholder management just really becomes complex under the circumstances. I was listening to John's story that that's the thought that I had. And it doesn't, I do feel like my Amazon experience was very much about stakeholder management because of the number of people that are impacted up or downstream from whatever your products do. And so if you choose a different course, you'll just end up touching a different group of stakeholders likely. And so I think that's the big learning for me. That was the big aha was the stakeholder management complexity that happens along the way. I'd love to build on that, Leslie. I think multiple stakeholder management is a key point that you made. And when you're dealing with global teams, it's really hard. When I was in a role helping small businesses deliver goods around the world to customers, we had launched some rocket ships. They were doing well. And then the UK wanted it. Italy wanted it. Japan wanted it. And they all had nuances for their marketplaces. So we had to think through how we do that, how we prioritize them. Going back to Jeff's original question, I think a aha for us, we needed more transparent roadmaps ahead of time for our stakeholder groups so they could see where we would be delivering in each of those marketplaces. Because of course everyone wanted a magic wand to launch all markets at once, but that doesn't always happen. So we had to have a very rigorous process to figure out where we're launching and how it would impact those businesses and which businesses were first. And Leslie, do you have any similar experience outside of Amazon where, similar to John's, anything to build off of what he just said? Well, I think in the best example I can give was, you know, we had a way that we managed at T-Mobile access to the internet across all of the different devices that we were selling and all of them were made by different people. BlackBerry and RIM, you know, had their view of the internet and then uh, Sidekick had its view of the internet and even Windows Mobile at the time had its view of the internet. And then all of a sudden Android came and everything had to change in order to open the internet up for people there. So that level of connected change to every single thing that had had been established before had to get reestablished in a world of open internet. The scale became exponentially likely that we would miss a group. It just became, there was somebody who needed to know something that didn't end up knowing it. And so that constant communication that John's talking about, right? That constant updating of the status of the project and the direction, because you can't keep running the bases every time a decision changes, but you do have to realize that the scale that you're operating the way you communicate is the key to making sure all the groups at least even bring other groups along on your behalf. That's kind of what strikes me from when we think about something on that global scale where everyone is touched by the change that your product is driving. And how do you make sure that you just don't get mired in stakeholder management and that you can actually continue to deliver and execute? All right. So Red is here. Very, very patient. And Red, I don't want to ask if you're Red E for audience questions. I do want people to know who you are 
and how they can get involved in today's conversation in just five minutes or less. <laughs> well, thank you, Jeff. And uh, for all those listening out there, my name is Red. I am part of the team, the crew, that was initially passionate about saying, hey, why aren't there more collegiate-level programs for product managers? Why isn't there a center for product managers? There's one for engineering. I mean, it just doesn't seem very fair and balanced when for every single engineer that's out there, there must be a product manager, as I'd like to say. Hopefully, there's no engineers here to get offended by that. But being this is a product management podcast, Jeff, we created that center, not only so that we can have all this event and programming, but so that we can make it easy for people not in Seattle, around the world, who are listening to this podcast to learn from each other. And every week, Tuesday evening, we like to present the opportunity, or Tuesday afternoon rather, the opportunity for folks to ask questions. You don't have to give your first name or last name. This is an anonymous, safe environment where you can ask the questions that you might not be comfortable asking. You know, there might be this fear that if I ask a question, I might be perceived as incapable of my job. Well, not here, folks. This is a lift up rocket ship to successful land of opportunity for every single one of you. You just have to ask the question. There's no such thing as a right or wrong question so long as you feel heard. That said, if you raise your hand or DM me on LinkedIn, keep the questions focused on today's topics. I know that for a lot of you new to product management, the idea of going from IC to product manager's manager might seem far away. That said, maybe this is an opportunity for you to either think about empathy for those in that position. And that will help you better interact with those individuals that hopefully maybe one day you will become. So I will leave the door open for Q&A. If you don't know what to ask, go find me via DMs here on LinkedIn. Send a pigeon, a fax, or heck, even use ChatGPT if you're not sure how to word the question. Whatever the case may be, Jeff, I'm going to be here to help with Q&A. That's my less than five minutes on how you can get involved, be heard, and hopefully walk it away today feeling inspired that you have what it takes to be a product manager. Thanks, Red. I love your energy always. Glad to have you here. Glad to have you back. And so as people start thinking about what their question is for our product executives on stage and they start raising their hand or messaging us, I want to ask John first a question. Just what is the day-to-day -day like? Uh, so when you are uh, managing multiple product teams, what do your days look like and how is that, I guess, uh, yeah, I don't know what the benchmark would be for your, in your case, but just what do you do? Sure. I remember managing multiple product teams. At first, you want to be dive deep and be the IC and talking to the engineers every day and other stakeholders. And you realize you can't do that to scale. And that's kind of an aha that takes a while for someone as a new manager may figure it out. But once they do that, they have to think a little bit differently. So I think it's important to think deeply about how to empower the teams, how to get people aligned in a way that you can have checks and balances, but not have to be in every conversation. Because if you're in every meeting for every product, you're never going to get anything done. And essentially, you're just a double IC for all the product teams. So instead, you have to think through ways to touch base with the teams. And so specifically, I would put in mechanisms of weekly check-ins, sprint check-ins, monthly reviews of product, and the roadmap of what they said they would do, where they're missing, where the risks and dependencies were, and those are the areas I would spend most of my time. Like, how are they blocked, and are they looking around the corner for the next thing, and how can I help that and remove any dependencies? Dependencies could be, I'm missing this tech team, or this country's asking for this sooner than our roadmap have, or whatever it may be. And so helping work through those is really how you can unleash the product teams on a regular basis. Yeah, I, I was just going to, you know, here, here, I, I agree with that. I was going to add, you know, I think as you move up, you might actually have multiple layers below you and you feel like you're losing touch with the stuff you used to love to do. That's kind of natural and normal. I, I do have to admit, I loved being a product manager and then being a manager of product managers and then a manager of senior managers. You move further away from those day-to-day -day things that you might have loved at the job. So how do you kind of keep your enthusiasm up? How do you keep connected to those more junior staffers who don't get the one-on-ones or don't take the time, you know, to meet you at an office hour? And so what I would do is I would have a monthly ask me anything. And the managers of those teams were more or less aware their performance was tied to making their teams not just show up on the Zoom 
or the chime, but to actually have good questions, like to be engaged. And the managers whose teams were the most engaged, it was a delight, but it was also something that you could be sure only had to happen once because then they all came prepared and they all felt connected and they all felt seen and heard. And I think things came out of those discussions. Those people never would have brought through leadership up to me. But once it became a safe space, just sort of the way like Red was trying to say this is, once we created that, more junior staffers felt seen, heard, and also connected to the bigger picture. And that really, I think, was the aha mechanism for me is as I moved even further up and there were more layers, just making sure I didn't lose sight of the trees because all I saw was the forest. All right. I'm loving this. Thank you both. And then we're going to turn to audience questions. One person raised their hand. And then as soon as I, uh, I think it was a technical difficulty that they fell off a stage. So if you want to come on back, we could fix that uh, technical difficulty. Before that, Leslie, we've done a lot for aspiring product managers. And now we have a program that's just for current product managers or recent product managers who maybe are looking for connections to get their new job. And you're leading a workshop coming up in December for people, product managers in the Elevate program. Can you just quickly tell them what's that workshop, who should take it, why they should take it, and what they'll be able to do better after it than they were able to do before? Sure. I think one of the really exciting features and one of the really valuable benefits for the for the fee for Elevate is an extended workshop that will be happening every quarter. And one of these workshops alone would probably be equivalent to uh, what someone might pay to go to that workshop, you know, on the open web. So I think it's a lot of value here. And this one in particular is a two-night workshop where we talk about customer-centric product innovation. And the goal here, a lot of people really struggle with the white space of customer product innovation, customer-driven product innovation. And so we want to really be able to get people confident with the construct and the tools that really help with customer discovery to make sure that the product or the innovation that's new and coming to market really has the right narrative behind it, the who, what, why, and when. And to do that, you really have to Uh, start with an impactful problem statement. So we're going to teach people how to really make the right type of problem statement, how to build a customer hypothesis and assess opportunities. We're going to use the tools and templates of human-centered design to help us with the process. And we're going to actually, Jeff, I don't even think I told you this, we're actually going to use a best by case study to take us through the workshop. So at different stages of the workshop, we'll have a real world example that will explain explain what we did right and what we did wrong as we were navigating through this particular customer problem. Awesome. Thank you so much. I love it. And so as Leslie was saying, one workshop alone would be worth the fee, but we also have office hours with executive and residents every Friday for the Elevate members in small groups, less than five people to get help on the questions that you have. John is one of those executive and residents who you'll be able to connect with, uh, and Leslie is as well. So uh, that's enough for me pitching Elevate, but it's a, a great program. We're really excited to add value to product managers, and it's an amazing team we have with John, Leslie, and over a dozen other executive and residents with some fantastic experience and passion for making the world better and helping people out. Let me just say one other thing, Jeff, because I think it's not immediately clear. You carefully curated an assortment of executives that would make it possible for someone to find somebody who has the kind of career they might be interested in modeling. I think the thing that you've done really well with the assortment and the buffet that's there for members of Elevate is to really cover B2B, B2C, startups and large enterprises. You've really, I think, got the kind of assortment that someone will be able to find the right type of support and leadership from that executive and residence cohort. So I just wanted to sort of endorse the process you followed in order to assemble that group. It's a team effort and love it. Uh, great point. And Red, speaking of team effort, I'm tagging you in and I'm stepping out. It's your show to run. Are you Red E? John loved it. You could hear him laughing. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I wanted to stay on mute for like 10 more seconds. <laughs> Just to make it actually hear it on you. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we have questions that have come in from all different directions. First, we'll go with the question of that on stage. Sunal. You are dressed to impress. You are ready to rock and roll, actively seeking product management roles. I will not say your last name. That is your call if you want to get yourself shamelessly out there into the ether of the internet for those listening. Uh, But Sonal, what is your question? How can we help you? The stage is yours. 
Yeah, hi everyone. Thank you so much for this opportunity and this is a great session. I will surely check the program which you guys are having. I have couple of questions, but for now I will ask like one question. Like I wanted to ask like you know industry is upgrading. So how do you stay informed about industry trends and customer needs to ensure that your product remain competitive and relevant like do you ask engineering team to do research on that or as a product manager you go in the ground and do the you know customer survey or everything i just want to know some insights on that and this is a really good question so now we get this every once in a while this idea of the feedback loop but i think and just to make sure that it's relevant to today's topic would it be okay if we answered it from the perspective of people who are managing the product teams So someone who might be two layers removed from the engineer, how do they keep that feedback loop alive? Is that a fair representation of the question? Yes, of course, yeah. Fantastic. Well, Leslie, you're off mute. What's uh what's your approach towards this and when yeah, you're done, I, you can jump yeah, in. Yeah. I think continuous discovery is kind of a religion for me. And I think part of the thing I teach teams that come to me as a manager through their own experiences and careers is to level set on the importance of continuous discovery that it's everyone's responsibility i don't expect it to be a designer's responsibility just to think about the ui i think even engineers and product people should do that likewise i don't think customer interactions or customer discovery work or competitive analysis should be the domain of only one team. So I feel that continuous discovery is is got to be something that's been culturally established as worth the time and effort and then through that process becomes part of the expectation that I have as a leader that those answers are available to my team if I ask them. Well, what is so and so doing about this? Have you talked to customers about this, right? And so that when a strategy is put forth, I understand that the team is done some potential discovery work that's multiple months and that might be ethnographic research some of it may be sitting on customer service calls and by the way an engineer can sit on a customer service call so once i get it in the dna of all the teams that it's my expectation that everyone should have ownership of that continuous discovery loop through what all the mechanisms that are available to do so then it becomes part of my goals with my team is to make sure that i'm able to keep checking in on how they're advancing in their understanding of the customer or the market i have two things to add on the customer discovery similar to leslie it's definitely part of my religion and i've found product teams get so busy they sometimes forget about it and so you need to find ways to keep encouraging and this could be sharing data sharing results sharing customer quotes anecdotes is a mechanism that i'm very fond of to tell people who may not be touching the customer directly imagine some back end engineer like here's the impression the customer had on this and so i think it's important to commit to that and figuring out how to do that across multiple teams and if product team a can benefit from anecdotes from product team b then you can share those and i think a lot of times that unleashes creativity the second one kind of taking liberty with the question from sanal like chat gpt is a big topic and so how do we stay on trends when we were trying to integrate chat gpt into a product i purposely brought people together in a brainstorm and said how can we think about this a cross functional team both product people analytical people design people engineering people because you wanted to stay on topic with this trend see if we could improve our product and get people more than just the product managers thinking about this and i think that's a very healthy approach where it gets it could be a concern is you don't want people just running to a shiny object and how you can keep new trends new ideas on focus for the product vision that you have but i think you can work through that as a group and as a team and then i have a a question related to sanal's question if that's all right and sanal please let me know if this is off track but it sounded like you, what leslie and john were saying was more like focused a little bit on the customer and more of the discovery and how do you like do you read certain things to just get a, an overall sense of where the macro environment or where the world is going and is there any particular resources that you found most helpful to just see like trends not just like i don't know i guess it's just two different ways of getting the trends like either from the micro view of talking to a bunch of individuals versus just kind of reading a broad view of what's happening in the world any thoughts on that or am i just taking it in a bad direction 
I can add on that. Like per the industry that I've been in, I'm always looking at blogs, key thought leaders, how they're innovating, and trying to ask ourselves what we can learn from that. How can we innovate for our customers? Because I think there's a lot of opportunity. And if you're limited just to the thinking of your team, you're thinking small. And ChatGPT is like an amazing one. I mean, even I follow a couple TikTok influencers talking about ChatGPT to kind of extend how I'm thinking about it. They're bringing up topics that I never thought of. And so I try to get information sources within my life to keep thinking and learning and growing. And Leslie, anything that you do to just away from the customer at the 10,000 foot level to get a sense of where the world is going or the industry is going? Well, I definitely spend a lot of time reading competitor sites for sure. Not because I want to be like them, but because I like to understand their view of the world. Whether it's whether I subscribe to it or not, it's it's interesting because they're putting that that messaging out into the audience. And I want to be aware of how, you know, how they're solving a problem or what opportunity exists from how they've chosen to solve a problem that we could pursue to be differentiated. So I spend a lot of time and Fortunately, you know, people spend a lot of time on content. And so your competitors are always going to be publishing content on all social channels and all sorts of places. And so I I love to put those in my feed. I love to, you know, keep myself on pins and needles, you know, that someone's made an announcement that I wish I'd made. Right. So it, I, I think that's one sort source of sort of just incoming passive data that I always will count on. I also, again, I think there are relevant industry blogs. When I was in retail, those would be different than when I was in advertising. But there are thought leaders and, you know, publishers in vertical domains that also give analysts insight. I always think that's interesting as well. Again, not because it's an opinion I want to adopt, but but I think they start to shape the landscape. Okay. So no. You've just sparked multiple conversations, an inception-level question within a question. I know you additional ones. If I could put you on pause and keep you on stage for a little bit longer, I got a question that was sent to me via DM. Does that work with you? Give me a thumbs up or an emoji. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. All right. Our next question comes in from Andrew, a product development leader specializing in growth, transformation, and impact within SaaS businesses. So we know this is coming from a SaaS company, most likely business to business. With that question in mind, for the panelists, love to hear their experiences around the organization of product management teams. Is there benefits to different structures by feature, architecturally, customer journey, et cetera? With this one, uh, John, I'll start with you and then go in reverse back to Leslie. What's your thoughts on this one? Sure. I think, I don't think there's any one way that's perfect for all different companies, and you have to find the way that fits for your organization. But what I try to do is have teams have like clear line of sight of what they want to achieve uh, without like bumping into other teams. But ideally, these could work in a flywheel concept where team A may be doing a certain portion of it that has certain outputs that could feed into another product team. And then they can see how their efforts link together. That's one approach. It doesn't always work. Other ways is just have similar concurrent running processes. But I want to make sure I'm fostering thinking across the teams. But I would, if I had concurrent teams, I usually do it around customer segments or product segments so that we can make sure we're aligned to the customer pain points. So those are two different approaches that I've taken in the past. I second that. Everything John said, I agree with. I I would add that I did in fact have experience at Amazon where the teams were completely working in different product stacks, like the applications were completely different. And so it wasn't ever a question that we could break them apart and reassemble them some way. But I think part of the other reason not to do that is they have different stakeholder sets. They have different customers kind of piling onto what John said, never been fond of a feature-based group a product group. I don't think it's the right level of ownership for a product manager. And I generally want to try to get people to be deep on their stakeholders and their customers. So that's usually a place that would start kind of organizing a product team around. That's how I would think about it. If all of a sudden you've got a product like I did at Best Buy, where we took on the smart home application for the Insignia branded hardware it could have gone either direction, right? It could have gone to my Geek Squad team. It could have gone to the store shopping team. We just made a whole new team for it because there was really no overlap. So that's how I kind of think about customer and stakeholder and the setup so that a product team can go deep with both of those. 
Fantastic. Well, we've got two great questions, and hopefully Andrew out there, for those who can't see him, he's rocking a bow tie dressed to impress. So, well, you've got a bow tie for radio, and the joke doesn't land. Okay. So, it landed, man. It landed. <laughs> it landed. Thank you. <laughs> we got a heckler crew. It sounds like they're far away, and it's hilarious. So uh, with this uh, next question coming in, we actually have a request for anonymity. And uh, the reason I say that word that is hard to pronounce uh, successfully is when you're talking about external teams. And uh, Leslie, you might have talked about cross-functional, and, and I'm thinking about the idea of external. How can a product manager, some manager, like if they're managing multiple teams and one of those teams happens to be external, what is a, a path for conflict resolution that you've seen work well that's not just the typical HR mumbo-jumbo? Again, this is coming in from somebody that, well, I, I can't say where they work or anything, but they are an external party, and this typically does tend to happen. So, Leslie, so when you say, how do you define external party? That's that's a little bit of a term I'm not sure I'm going to answer correctly unless I understand better. Yeah, they don't actually carry the badge to scan within the company. They're solving a product problem as a hired third-party service. Oh, Okay. That's so interesting that you use that example as the way to define it, because um, I did at Best Buy while we were building the team in Seattle, we didn't actually have enough employees on board yet to actually build the whole product with just fully badged Best Buy hires. And so we hired a product team to help us get the first app out the door, which meant we needed them to work like they were employees, even though they weren't badged as employees. And so part of the uh, arrangement we made was that they had to work within our four walls. They couldn't work like in their own lab in the, you know, in, and then come out every so often for a meeting. Like we had to treat them that, like they were a part of our agile team. And if they weren't in the building, they had to participate in the agile ceremonies as if they were a full-time employee. And so for that particular scenario, they knew they weren't going to have the job long-term. They knew they were sort of a staff aug, which is what we would call them, a staff augmentation. But we also then in that scenario said, we don't want to treat you like that. We want to treat you like you're an employee. And it changed everything. So as more people came on, there was more investment in the handover to them because they were actually in the building and seeing the team grow and seeing how we grew. Because you couldn't tell whether the UI person was going to come ahead of the UI engineer, the designer versus the engineer who was going to get hired first. So we needed to fill in the gaps as we were still moving towards launch. And this team ended up successfully integrating even as staff AUG because they were willing from the start to operate as if they were part of the same Agile team. Interesting. You know, from what I remember about your offices, I would rather be in those offices with the uh, different benefits, you know, I think there was a foosball table, maybe a beer on tap. A lot of, no, it was a great place and they didn't mind. I think that if they felt it was stifling their creativity, you know, like it was some sort of makeshift repurposed office from the Seattle Times. So we really did invest in the physical property and it did make it desirable for them to be there during the day. So it's, it's, not, it's not a bad point, Brad. I mean, I think that is part of what helps somebody feel good about filling in as an external partner is to feel more a part of the whole. I love that. You proactively make them a part of the team so you can conflict and resolve as if they are rather than start them off on the wrong foot. Leslie, great example. Fantastic. And I'm getting thumbs up that we, we've answered it. So, John, unless you'd like to add a additional sauce to the steak here or sprinkles to the ice cream, we can move on to our next question. Your call. I would just add a little bit briefly. I've had good success and bad experiences with this. And I'm fully aligned with co-location that Leslie was saying. But rolling that up, it's also communication, like how you communicate, how you stay aligned. Because sometimes I have experiences where you can't co-locate, meaning resources are in a different country. And so figuring out how to do that and communicate so that they feel part of the team, the same benefits that you get with co-location, it's hard, but it can be done. And through good communication and good processes, you can help them feel part of the team, jazz, inspired to go innovate to solve the pain point that you're looking at. Okay. I got jazz hands right now. I'm jazzed. I'm feeling it. Now, so no, no pressure. We did keep you on stage so you can ask additional questions. We have room for one more question before we move to closing thoughts. So could you potentially prioritize on your mental roadmap the most effective question and then ask it now? Okay. Thank you so much. And like this question coming from a student who was a product manager 
India and now I'm pursuing MBA in marketing and information systems. So I'm seeking product manager roles. So this is coming from my experience when I was managing multiple products and addressing the uh, challenges and, you know, asking questions and having meetings with the stakeholders. So I had this difficulties, like, I want to ask this question to you guys, like, what were the challenges or obstacles have you encountered in managing multiple products? And like, how have you addressed them in your day to day life? I know this could be a basic question, but I feel this is a really important part as a product manager, especially when you manage multiple products. Who's going to jump on this one first? Uh, let's start with John, if that's all right. Just to be clear on the question, it sounded like what are the barriers or blockers of managing product, multiple product teams? Is that right, Sanal? Yes, like day-to-day uh, -day roadblocks when you talk to multiple teams and work on multiple products. There's several things I could throw in there. Some we've talked about earlier on the podcast, but I think the most successful examples I have and when I've been able to empower the teams, speak a similar language, understand deep enough, but not become the IC. Because then the IC starts to say, why is my manager here? But you need to have a good enough understanding of it so that you can help remove risks, dependencies, which every product in the world has. And so you have to think through how to do that. Every company culture is a little bit differently. For me, I would leverage tactically one-on-ones with PMs to make sure we're in sync. I would leverage monthly product reviews and roadmap reviews to make sure we're in sync. Things along those lines, have those are kind of good ways for me to make sure we're steering the ship in the right direction. So I'm going to add on something slightly different, um, not to disagree, just a new topic at the 11th hour I'm going to throw in, which is culture. One of the challenges that you can have managing multiple product teams is if each product team has its own culture and the cultures together don't unify under you into the culture of the team you want to lead. I have seen agile processes to be mirrored across every team. But sometimes those, the changes in those process, processes can symbolize differences in the culture. And so how do you make sure that when the team does get together or needs to get together or is addressing stakeholders, that the overarching culture, whether that starts with the customer obsession component of culture or just the respect and collaboration culture, there's a sense of inclusivity and everyone's at the table and able to speak and be heard. Like that, I think, is one of the most important things to be proactive about when you start to manage multiple teams. Because if you let each team build its own culture and then you try to wrap your arms around everything that reports to you and you find that they're as if they're from not only literally different countries, but not from the same culture then you really have a hard time when you need to maybe rejigger the org or whether you need to let somebody move over to a team temporarily to get the job done that that team's falling behind on. You have a lot harder time doing it because that person gets lifted out of one culture and dropped into another culture. So I think harmonizing the culture towards one of customer obsession and inclusivity and all of those things so that each team, when it operates independence, carries those values. That to me is one of the biggest challenges I learned early on. Karma, 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 chameleon. Why am I singing that weird song from the 80s? Because the amount of times I've heard the word culture deserves a shout out to Culture Club. Boom. There's no relevance to today's meeting. You are now officially one brain cell less intelligent yeah. as that. Unless I offended anybody, which if I do that, that's unfortunately just what I do. Leslie, John, your Q&A time is up. So as much as I'd like to continue my karma, chameleon, karaoke... I'd like to pass things back to Jeff for closing thoughts so people can leave this room back to their work days with zeal, with excitement, and most importantly, trust that we exist to help them. So for their darkest days of getting into PM and product management and to be a manager of product managers, they know who to call. Not the Ghostbusters, but us. Back to you, Jeff. <laughs> what other podcast about product management can you get somebody singing Karma Chameleon and... <laughs> I think our brain cells got got stronger because of it. Speaking of brain cells, it's time to infuse everybody's brains with bite-sized takeaways. What do you want to leave the audience with as it relates to managing multiple product teams? 
And bonus points if you're able to connect it to what experience they'll have joining the Elevate program and connecting with you as executives and residents, but not required. That's extra credit. Leslie, do you want to go first with uh, concluding bullet point takeaways? Yeah, I think that the responsibility of a manager of multiple product teams is to, I think, create an environment that enables each product manager to grow in their job at the same time, providing the right kind of sponsorship and support for the work that they're doing. I think that's a really important component of it. How do you advocate for everyone? How do you support everyone? And how do you make sure that, like I said, the squeaky wheel doesn't get all of the grease? think that's super important. I think creating a culture that even that might support different ways of working creates a common culture, really allows for people to hear and listen and learn from other other sources than themselves in, in an insular way. And just kind of to tie that just all to elevate, I think one of the things that's so great about the executive and residence aspect of that program is these are people who have lived the job and are truly talking what they experienced, good, bad learnings from you know serendipity or learnings from failure are all part of it. So whether it's in an office hour or a workshop, I think there's access to people who are walking the path slightly ahead of you and willing to stop and bring you along. And I think that's what leaders do when they manage multiple product teams is they don't get so far ahead of them that they can't keep bringing those teams along with them as the strategy evolves and the learning and discovery continues. Cool. Just a couple uh, final thoughts for myself. First, thanks, Red, for your singing. That was amazing. And really enjoyed being on here with Jeff and Leslie. I support everything Leslie was saying about culture, like thinking through how to be a customer-obsessed culture, how to get teams aligned. We talked about the importance of communication. We mentioned it, but I just want to reiterate, like, it's not easy going from an IC to managing multiple product teams. And don't get defeated. Like It takes time. One can do it. Learn from the product teams. One thing we didn't mention, we talked about customer discovery and feedback, but also ask for feedback from your partners, your engineering teams, other PMs, how you're doing as you're growing in the role, and that'll help you. And then similar to what Leslie was saying, I wish I had access to people with experience from the Elevate program. Come to office hours or workshops and ask questions that you may not want to ask within your own culture and find uh, ways to bounce ideas and brainstorm on problems that you're going through. It's been a pleasure joining. All right. Thank you both. For me, my concluding thoughts are not about the Elevate program, but just about the power of people who care about others. I just love that Red has been here for almost three years now, entertaining us and making sure that everybody has a place where they could feel heard and uh, learn from some of the best. And grateful for Leslie and John for giving a valuable hour here to all of you, uh, to just in service of the community. And then also they're volunteering their time in the Elevate program. So it's just always inspiring when you see people give back. So whether you want to give back through the Product Management Center like Leslie and John and Red or wherever, uh, I hope you take away from this, that there are people out there, they can reach the highest of highs, but they're also considering others and trying to help others reach those same heights. And I hope you will do the same at whatever you are on the mountain. I hope you'll bring uh, people up around you as well. So thank you everybody for listening. Next week, we're going to be talking about another wonderful subject and we'll be here on LinkedIn Tuesday at 12 p.m. And uh, you could listen to this episode and all other episodes of the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast available wherever podcasts can be downloaded. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night or great day or all of it. Great day and night. Take care.